This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder from the Library of Congress. My guest today is Robert Horton, Minnesota State Archivist and the Minnesota Historical Society's Director of Library, Publications, and Collections. Well, thanks for talking with me today, Bob. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your background, you know, some of your early work, um, uh, your education. Is it, is it a library background? No, actually, it, it isn't. And I um, started off as a historian, and actually a medieval historian, and was working, oh, goodness, through a couple of uh, degrees on, on medieval history. And in the same time, uh, really ever since high school, though, I'd had jobs as a sideline or for extra cash in libraries and archives. And so as I developed a better knowledge of what was going on in the library and archival world and appreciated that more and uh, got a better knowledge of what was going on in the his- history and academic world and appreciated that less, I, I kind of segued over into the library and archival world and um, then um, got my first full-time job as an archivist in Indiana at the State Archives there and then was introduced to a whole variety of, of opportunities in technology and electronic records, which I found very interesting and, and things kind of took off from there. Now, now, how did that come about? I, I know that, you've, that you really did take off with electronic records, and you were the head of the electronic records and the, the management program at the, uh, the Indiana Commission on Public Records. Yes. That's a very big deal, and that was about what, about what the mid-'90s? Yeah, early to mid-'90s. Um, there were a couple of things that, that I think uh, were, were catalysts. And, and one, the NHPRC was, was having some... Um, uh, what would you call a Camp Pitt was the uh, the name for it. The University of Pittsburgh collaborated with uh, the National Association of Government Archivists and Records Administrators to have kind of boot camps for um, state archivists, state people working in state archives, to learn more about technology and electronic records. And that opened my eyes to a lot of possibilities. It also introduced me to a tremendous uh, number of really, really smart people. Um, and that, that's been invaluable. I think the, uh, the most important aspect of those um, Camp Pitt uh, experiences were the, were the opportunity to meet, meet people and form some, some friendships, which then became the basis of a lot of collaborations. So that, that was one thing. The other was, I think, the, uh, you know, what, what really energized a lot of people about technology is, is the advent of the Internet. And we were very fortunate in Indiana that the Department of Education in particular was very interested in the Internet and actually um, encouraged me to develop a gopher site. Um, if you can remember back that far. Sure. I'm not sure how old you are. But, um, and uh, uh, then, strangely enough, it was at a wedding when I was telling someone about uh, the gopher site um, that we were, we were developing and he said, wait till you see this World Wide Web thing that we're playing with. And he was from the Indiana University Library and allowed us to get involved with that. So very early uh, along the line, um, by about, uh, oh, goodness, about 94, 95, we were developing websites with Gopher and, and World Wide Web. And um, it was exciting. I think it really opened us up and certainly opened my eyes up to the idea that 
um, technology was an opportunity, much more so than just simply a problem, which I think a lot of librarians and archivists were originally thinking that this is somehow going to complicate our lives, that it was going to make it harder, that it was one more thing to do, and it was an expensive and really hard thing to do. And what we were discovering, and especially what we were enjoying about working with the technology available to us through the um, collaborators we had, was the was the chance to deliver uh, material to our users and and provide services and work with our our partners in ways that you know were just absolutely incredible. I think you know no one could really envision them, um, and those I think um, were tremendously exciting. Now, now, Gopher, as I recall, was it was all uh, command line stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was basically it looked like kind of like a directory and and an old DOS kind of. Windows application. Sure, and and given the projects that you're known for, uh, you have a kind of a more democratic focus, getting stuff out to the people. So, mm-hmm. was there an aha moment when you saw the commercial web, when you saw browsers? Did you get into interface design and and whatnot to get people to that information? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, we it, we had a, we had a couple of projects, and and I think you know this is the uh, you know the interesting. Part of it is, you know, part part of what you do is you learn from success. Part of it you learn from from failure. One of the things we we learned from success was that uh, in the mid '90s, Indiana passed a law, like most states, about uh, sex offender registration and, and notifications about sex offenders. And it was kind of an interesting thing because the law made no reference to technology, but it assumed that everybody would collaborate in sharing information: courts, local police departments. Uh, parole uh, officers, etc., um, and then provide um, compiled lists of sex offenders and make those available um, to citizens of Indiana. So it was a kind of a notification, public notice, notice law. And it and and when we were reading this, it became um, incredibly clear that there was no way to do it on a paper-based uh, system. That it would just be an enormous amount of material. So we, in fact contacted the agency that was going to be responsible for this and volunteered to kind of um, organize a way of, of, of uh, collecting and integrating various data sets from uh, criminal justice information systems and pulling them together in an interface that would allow them to be searchable. So it was really, it was really kind of an interesting project in the sense that we delivered, we immediately solved a problem that was otherwise really going to be a tremendous problem and um, really... Uh, uh, met the needs of the law, met the needs of the uh, expressed needs of the citizenry, and also um, delivered a real service to the to the agencies, the state agencies. And it was a very simple uh, thing. I mean, I and when we look back on it now, I'm, I'm amazed we um, uh, I, I, we wouldn't have been able to get away with it so easily. I mean, there were lots of things that that we could do simply because nobody had really had done them before and realized all the problems. But it was a success in the sense that. Um, you know, we had something up and running within six months of the law's passage that would have been, as I said, completely impossible uh, in the structure that was originally envisioned. So that that was a success. The other thing was it was kind of an interesting failure is that, you know, of course, we worked with a lot of family historians, like any any archives does. And one of the things that they were most interested in, in which we had a wealth of records on, were uh, institutional commitments. You know, if someone had been in prison, someone had been in a hospital, an orphanage, or something like that. 
because you know, for the most part, if you if you're a citizen who leads an ordinary blameless life, you you don't uh, leave much of a documentary trail, right? You know, you got a birth record, a death record. If for whatever reason you get involved in the uh, with the state as uh, uh, and involved in an institution, um, you leave tremendous files of records, which are extraordinary value to um, family historians. So we had lots of family historians trying to get into our prison records, lots trying to get into our, our hospital records. So we actually developed a database, a searchable database, for access to the hospital records. Um, and we were, you know, of course, aware of, of patron, patient privacy laws, et cetera. So we just had um, carefully developed a database that included only public information. We put it online. And um, basically, the day that it went online, we were called by the governor's office and said, "You know, w- you can't do this. Um, we don't. We don't want you um, uh, uh, providing, um, basically, publicizing information that people had been in committed to mental hospitals in the state." And we said, um, "Well, actually, it's public information." And they said, "We don't care. Um, uh, it, you know, this is not the way to present it." So we basically kind of discovered this idea that. Uh, the laws really, and we hadn't appreciated, the laws really hadn't caught up with the technology, and public opinion certainly had, hadn't caught up with the technology. So very quickly we learned that technology was 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 um, is, was not just a matter of databases and applications and programmings. That that if we were going to be able to use technology, we had to look at it in a wider cultural context of of laws and, and public opinion and uh, promotion and education. Um, and that even though we had been convinced and we had been talking to family historians who thought this was like the greatest thing since sliced bread, um, we had a whole different audience out there who thought it was a gross invasion of privacy, simply because before, you know, you had to actually drive in a car and park somewhere and then go into the archives and look something up. Now you could get it online. And um, that, they thought, was really kind of threatening. So we learned a lot about the social context of technology very quickly. And and how we needed to address a wide variety of constituencies, way beyond just the idea of building a database and putting it online. Uh, a whole variety of things we had to consider to make something useful and make it work. So, so what was the outcome of that? With the, uh, let's say the, uh, the the health records that you put online, did you did you pull them and work with the politicians, or what was the outcome there? Well, it was it wasn't the health records were online. It was just an index. So it was basically, it just said it was an index to uh, records that we had in a uh, format. So, I mean, we were being careful about this, um, uh, and and basically, though, what what happened was um, we we didn't work it out. I mean, the the, the then governor, um, his office was was not interested in a solution. It just wanted the material offline. Um, so, you know, the 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 net result is, of course, that anything subsequent to then, I've, I've been a lot more careful uh, in understanding the the uh, uh, the whys and wherefores of, of public reaction and. And understanding that uh, once you put something online, it, it it's going to affect a whole variety of people, even beyond the, the the audience you envision or the traditional audience it already has. And so it sounds like, uh, as far as state archives go, that it's going to be a state by state decision on not so much the ethics, but the right or wrong. It sounds like there's a, oh, yeah. it's it's going to be something to contend with for every state to contend with at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and the Supreme Court has even had a sort of a a little ruling on this, which was basically saying that you know, there's, um, e- even though the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court was is basically saying that um, 
uh, making material available online, even though it's legally open to the public, is substantially different from just having it available in a paper format or repository. That um, that that there's a significant change um, in the nature of 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 of, of access and in, in the in the definition of privacy when material is easy to get um, when it's it's public but it's hard to get it's actually um, a sort of a, a, a it's okay I guess it's it's not as <laughs> is not as major a problem but if it's public and easy to get then um, there are a lot of people who who think that it really does verge on an invasion of privacy and it has a material effect on how they uh, interpret um, privacy laws. So, uh, you know, this is a really interesting thing in a lot of ways, but um, the basic ruling, um, the basic rule or basic um, understanding that come out of this is that the laws have not caught up with the technology. Um, We have a whole variety of of laws in every state and at the federal government calling for records management and official records and access to records and privacy, etc., that were all written for paper. And suddenly you've got the advent of technology and mashups and a whole variety of other things that, that make uh, access to information really, really easy and allow for the mining of information in digital format to make a whole variety of connections um, obvious uh, that were just impossible with paper. And so the laws have not caught up, and it's a continuing challenge for those of us, I think, working with the content because we have not only to figure out what the laws are now, but really what the reaction is going to be and what the laws will then uh, change, how they'll change to take take account for what and account what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm looking or uh, thinking of uh, rather your your work with uh, real estate records. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, and GIS, um, and and there certainly are business opportunities for for, for people there. Uh, mm-hmm. How, how do you feel about that taking taking publicly available information a, a, again when it was just a matter of walking into a, a city hall and doing the stuff by hand it's more laborious and, and you can kind of justify somebody making a buck from it but if somebody can rig a whole business around um, immediately available real estate information and GIS information and all is, is that fair to you does that seem okay is- well it's 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 interesting the way the system works now, and, it, and I don't want to bore everybody with a, a discussion. But I, I found the real. I worked for. I still am on the on the task force. I worked for several years on the Minnesota's Electronic Real Estate uh, Real Estate Recording Task Force, and, and here again is a really interesting sort of thing where if, if you've bought property, and I assume have you ever bought a house, mm-hmm. so you know that um, you probably spent umpteen hours signing things, right? I mean, it was the... Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, an astonishing amount of paper. You know, and, uh, yes. Yeah. And w- my wife and I bought our first house, and you know, we signed things and we signed things, and then we went to a two-hour closing where we signed more things. And the very last thing I had to sign was a list of all the different signatures I had used. It was Robert Horton and Robert B. Horton and R.B. Horton and Bob Horton. <laughs> and the last thing I signed was, was an affidavit that says uh, I was actually all these people, even though I had unwittingly been using a different signature all along the way. And so I said, you know, how do you want me to sign this? And they say, use one that's already on the list. And um, this, you know, it, it's kind of a, it, it, it's kind of an eye-opening system in some way because it's really sort of primitive. You've got 
um, banks, which are, of course, extraordinarily technologically advanced, and real estate um, title companies that are technologically advanced, and uh, state revenue offices that are technologically advanced. And the medium of communication is all this paper, right? So you, you generate paper with your technology, and then you send it off to somebody um, who then redacts it in their technology. And, and so it, it's crazy. You know, how, how could you ex- prove that by exchanging content in a digital format rather than paper? Well, it's again, it's a situation where it's so obvious. You know, it would benefit so many people, but the, the obstacles to it are kind of weird, traditional, legal, cultural, political, um, even though that uh, in, in the overall sense, it would be a tremendous boon to the state and save um, citizens money and save everybody money. In fact, you realize that the political system is based on uh, a particular group, um, uh, recorders in most cases, county recorders, uh, having the responsibility to do this. And um, changing the system would mean basically in some ways eliminating their responsibilities, maybe even their whole offices because, you know, you don't really need them. And so that's a political problem. You also have a legal problem in the sense you've got all these laws, again, that says, you know, he has to sign in black ink or blue ink on this form, and the form has to look like this. Minnesota, we actually had a law that said now that it's signed, you have to fold it in um, this way so it will rest in a trifold. I mean, it was really ridiculous. Um, So uh, the whole apparatus was extraordinarily clunky. And uh, you, uh, at least you know, when you look at it, you say, boy, this has to change. And I went into it thinking, man, we're going to have a solution here that everybody's going to love. And we could work out a technological solution, but it took us a long time to work out the legal and cultural and political issues that would allow that technology to work. Um, and then, of course, you have the issues that you are raising, which is suddenly all this information is available. And you have something like Zillow, where, you know, much to my parents' amazement, you know, I can always... Uh, go online and tell them how much their house is worth and their neighbor's houses. Yeah. You know, and and, and um, they just, my, my parents are in their 80s, and, you know, they just find this absolutely incredible. Um, and to a certain extent, I find it too. You know, I mean, I, I never in in in, uh, in my wildest imagination would I go to my next door neighbor and said, you know, how much did you pay in taxes last year? <laughs> uh, you know, how much is that addition worth? But I can go online and find that out now. Yeah. And uh, it just does seem very strange. Speaking of um, publicly available records, tell me about your work with the Tobacco Document Library. Oh, um, yeah, that's that's actually, uh, I, I, and I, I give a tremendous amount of credit to the University of California at San Francisco in this. Um, we've really done a remarkable job. Um, as you probably know, there were in the 90s um, a whole variety of um, lawsuits against tobacco companies, um, two major ones, um, one by a consortium of states, and one by the state of Minnesota all by itself. Well, the, the then Attorney General, Skip Humphrey, Huber Humphrey's son, didn't agree with the approach that the consortium was taking, so he went it alone. And basically, Minnesota won. Um, the tobacco companies decided to settle out of court and litigation, and one of the clauses in the settlement said that all the information that had been discovered during litigation, and this were millions of pages of documents from tobacco company research, tobacco company advertising, tobacco company um, uh, uh, lobbying, tobacco company internal deliberations, 
um, basically the most complete and, to a large extent, unedited, uncensored, unexpurgated view of corporate activity that there really ever ever was, I think. Um, so anyway, millions of pages. And one of the clauses said that as a consequence of the suit, the tobacco companies agreed to establish a repository in Minnesota, which would make the content of the of the litigation available for researchers for 10 years. At the end of 10 years, all of it would go to the Historical Society. And we had never been consulted in this. Wow. Um, and in fact, we were. I had heard about the repository and was kind of interested in visiting it during the litigation, but I was told that only people involved in litigation were allowed into it. I was just kind of curious as to how they were arranging their stuff because it was a lot of um, material. And so this came as a tremendous surprise to us and kind of a shock because at that point it was about 20 million pages of documents and, and a huge, huge repository. And with the prospect of having it land on our laps in 10 years was kind of sobering. So uh, with the help of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota, which gave us a, a grant to explore what to do with it, we set up a number of meetings and talked to the, the users, the tobacco companies, the state agents, the attorney generals, all those things, everybody who was involved in this, both as a records creator or records user, about the best way to deal with the content. And almost to a person, the researchers said, digitize it. Don't screw around with this. You know, Don't try any of your fancy archival metadata. Don't you know, wait, well, talk to us about EAD, encoded finding aids. Just digitize it and put it online so we can get at it right away with as with as less um, less of a delay as possible, which is kind of an interesting review of how people viewed the archives. You know, they they kind of saw us as everything we proposed would have been just one more obstacle in their efficient use of this content. So uh, humbled, uh, we developed a plan to digitize the material. And University of California, San Francisco, at the very end of our our last meeting when we were looking at this plan, which of course involved a lot of money and a lot of responsibility. UCSF said, ah, what the hell, we'll do it. And they raised sufficient funding to to digitize material and to get it online in a, in a wonderful application, really re- remarkable, and then to continue to add to it as further litigation produced more and more documents. So I think they're up to about 40 million documents right now. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's I think it's probably the single largest digital archive that there is that I know about anyway, in terms of a, um, a single collection, and tremendously useful. I mean, it's been used for all sorts of things. It's a wonderful book called The Cigarette Century praises it highly, and a whole variety of, of uh, and, um, obviously, um, uh, anti-tobacco efforts, uh, smoking cessation. It's a wonderful set. I mean, when you look at, look at some of the material they have, and I urge you to go to it mm-hmm. to look at some of the more interesting documents they've found over the years, it's tremendously impressive and just totally eye-opening, the stuff that they found in it and, and what the tobacco companies were doing. So it, it was really an extraordinary effort, and I'm, I, I'm very proud um, to be a part of it. And it was extraordinarily interesting to learn about what people wanted, because that was really the, the main emphasis of a lot of our research, was how would we, how would we make this stuff more useful to the people who wanted to access to it? And so we learned a lot about what kind of functionality they wanted. It was the first time we heard about, this was, what, late 90s, about things like social tagging, uh, my collection type activities. Well, you know, Before Amazon was doing any of this stuff, we had people telling us how to do it. 
can. I think UCSF successfully incorporated it. But most important, I think, and something that I, you know, it'll probably be considered heretical by my colleagues in the in the profession. I really took to heart the fact that most of these, virtually all of our users said, metadata, forget about it. You know, we just, you know, the more time you spend with this stuff, the less useful it is to us. Get it online with a full text search and the ability to tag it and organize it by ourselves, and we'll use it, which I thought is something that was was quite new, and it's really kind of inspired a lot of our work since then. So did the librarian in you didn't balk at that uh, turning the power over to the people, the social tagging and folksonomy? Uh, yeah. you, you didn't balk at that at all? Well, I frankly was quite surprised at it. I mean, I certainly didn't see it coming, but what I heard was a really compelling case. I mean, they said, you know, there's going to be X amount of money for this. You know, the more money we spend on archivists, the less, uh, the smaller an archive we have, you know. I mean, the less material it goes online. Yeah. And they also were presenting a whole variety of technologies that we didn't know much about. So I think what we learned was there were some real alternatives that uh, we could do some things with uh, technology that would effectively complement our traditional practices and in some ways supplant, you know, be more than adequate substitute for our traditional practices. And that more important than, you know, my uh, closely guarded archival principles um, was the fact that, you know, our, our users had a clear idea of what was the right return on investment. I mean, they knew what they wanted and we would not get the support to do what we wanted without their support. So that if we couldn't, we couldn't go and get funding unless we said we had paid attention to our audience and our audience had told us this and we'd figured out how to do it. So it was really that, that understanding of what the audience wants that really made it possible to do anything at all. And that, that seems to be a kind of a recurring theme in some of the, uh, some of the things that you published. Um, you know, local knowledge, appropriate practices, not best practices, kind of, Trusting the end user in a way instead of dictating to them. Well, yeah, I think it, I think it's the it's it's the only practical way forward, um, and I I think it it comes at a certain cost because there's a certain uh, how do I put it I mean the archival profession has struggled for several decades to uh, acquire an identity, and that identity has been defined in terms of of principles and practices, and to a certain extent the technology has come along and said you know those practices they don't apply. They're all about paper and they don't translate um, all that effectively. Or that those 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 principles, you know, they, they don't seem to make sense in this world or they're not going to garner the support we want. So I, I think there's a, a continual sort of dialectic going on, which is refreshing, I think, if, you know, if you take it the right mood. It's horrible if you take it as criticism, you know, that you guys are all wrong. That's, that's kind of destructive, but I think it's refreshing in the sense that we have to be useful. I mean, you know, we can't expect support from the government and funding agencies and the IMLS and professional donors to do just what we want, when we want, how we want. That's just not realistic. I mean, it, if we can't take into account what people do with our collections and how they want to work with our collections, then I don't think we're serving any kind of social purpose. I mean, we're, we're just living some kind of completely solipsistic life, and that, that's just not feasible, especially when, you know, everybody's budget is collapsing and we're really fighting for recognition. And certainly in the last year or two in Minnesota, we're in a, we're in a, a situation where, you know, we have to go up 
for um, funding requests to the state capital, and we're standing in line with K-12 education and health care and the roads and bridges collapsing. And it's hard to get in line and say, you know, the archives is the most important thing here, more important than the kids, more important than the health. More, you know, it's just not possible. But So you, you have to make a case for the value you're delivering, I think, and that kind of trumps whatever professional practices and principles you learned in in school. So when it comes to your work with other states, budget is very much a consideration these days. You mentioned in a a lecture at the Library of Congress you're you're using uh, Vermont as an example of the way their state information, their state archives are set up and the condition of their information technology as opposed to, let's say, California. You know, one is mm-hmm. a lot more technologically advanced than the other, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. But everybody is strapped for cash. Right, right. So so can you talk about that, what it's like to work with the states to share information, to try and set up standards, to try and get people to collaborate? Well, interestingly, one, one thing I have to say is that, you know, since giving that talk about a year or so ago, you know, California's collapsed, and Vermont looks pretty healthy. Um, so, you know, everybody, it's kind of a dynamic situation. The basic thing is that when we first got our, our end of grant, and we started to talk to the states that were interested in working with us, we paid visits to each one and sat down with the legislative staff, the IT staff, the archival staff. And in every case, they made a very persuasive case that they were different. You know, they're, they're wherever we went, Somebody would point out, you know, we have these resources and we have this mission and our statutes say this, and the way it adds up is, you know, we may superficially be in the same business as you are, but the equation is is significantly different in some way or another. So that, that's basically where we sort of realized that the idea of proposing best practices or kind of one-size-fits-all model really wasn't going to work, and that what we had to sort of encourage and understand is how uh, individual states and their different environments were going to be able to adapt and modify whatever we could propose. So we came up with the idea of appropriate practices. And so what we're we're trying to develop in our project is not just a model that's going to work in Minnesota, but a variety of tools, evaluation tools, analytical tools, et cetera, that will allow each state to say, you know, this will work for me and this won't. Uh, to kind of understand the process we went through so they can do it on an accelerated basis and come up with something that's reasonable and right for them. And I think, you know, all our travels, and by now at this point I think we've got about nine states involved with us, so we actually see a substantial number of states. They really are very, very different, you know, and, and it's easy to say, well, everybody's got a state legislature and everybody's sort of got a state archives and everybody does this stuff, but they do it in very different ways with very different kinds of capacities and resources and and um, very different kind of interests. And a lot of it is, is almost accidental. You know, someone in the legislature is really interested in this, and he or she will make it happen. And in another state, you know, we don't have a, a someone like that, and so you have to take a totally different kind of low-key, uh, incremental approach to building building a, a collaboration. So, yeah, the states, the states are ex- extremely different. When you get right down to detail, on on a kind of gross conceptual level, everybody's quite quite much alike. But when you actually get into the implementation, the differences are just astonishing. So, do you try to play matchmaker between different states? Do you try and, and form collaborations? Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm hoping, and what we're sort of working with on some projects here, is that that we start to understand collaborations among states. You know, not just within states. 
but sort of an understanding that, for example, that the the capacity that the California Digital Library is developing uh, is something that we'll never have in Minnesota. So why don't we develop something in Minnesota that involves the California Digital Library? Where conversely, you know, our neighboring state of North Dakota is quite interesting, quite capable, um, a lot of skills, but maybe they can share some things with us in terms of digital preservation that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So I, I think we're, we're looking at more than just collaborations within a certain state, but ideally collaborations across states um, and among states that will allow for uh, people being able to do things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do themselves. And, and recognizing that we all have our limitations and that we have to kind of develop our specialties, our, our niches, so to speak, and that that uh, is uh, really the only feasible way of moving forward. We can't all build and learn all the technologies that are going to be involved in these things. So we, we have to work together. Well, Bob, thanks very much for, for talking with me today. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.